KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power, welcoming the renowned Jack Quartet to San Diego for an evening of music titled Modern Medieval, with works by Caroline Shaw, Morton Feldman, and more. Monday, May 6th at The Loft at UC San Diego, artpower.ucsd.edu. Teenage sisters create a racial reckoning at Poway Unified School District. If we had more teachers of color on campus, those things wouldn't happen. I'm Mark Sauer with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. We hear from candidates for County Supervisor District 2, Joel Anderson and Steve Voss. I want to move the ball and I'm tired of politicians who just make excuses but never really do anything. They want their elected representatives to demonstrate integrity and respect and fair representation. That's what I've always done and always will do. A San Diego federal prosecutor quits because of Attorney General William Barr and SeaWorld and Legoland say it's time they be allowed to reopen. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. The San Diego County Board of Supervisors is changing more radically this year than it has in decades as new term limits take effect. The East County's 2nd District seat that has been held by Republican Diane Jacob for nearly 30 years is now open, and two Republicans are vying for it. Joel Anderson, a former California Assemblyman and former State Senator, is competing with Steve Voss, the Mayor of Poway and the Chair of the San Diego Association of Governments. KPBS's Allison St. John spoke to the candidates about the issues and the race to represent the 2nd District. Here's that interview. The San Diego County Board of Supervisors is changing more radically this year than it has in decades as new term limits kick in this year. The East County 2nd District seat that has been held by Republican Diane Jacob for nearly 30 years is now open and two Republicans are vying for it. Joel Anderson, a former California Assemblyman and former State Senator, is competing with Steve Voss, the Mayor of Poway and the Chair of the San Diego Association of Governments. So, gentlemen, welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. First, I'd like to give you the opportunity to help us understand the differences between you as Republicans. So, Senator Anderson, let's start with the president. President Trump is a a divisive figure. What are the things that you admire most about him? East County needs jobs in career paths. President Trump has an economic plan that I support, and I support President Trump. Thank you very much. Mayor Voss, what about you? I know that uh, Joel Anderson has in the past called you an ever-Trumper. Is that accurate? 545 days ago, when Habad of Poway was attacked and Lori Kay was killed by a hateful gunman, hours later I got a phone call from the president. He offered the full support of the federal government to the president stood with us during those difficult and, and dark days. I will never forget that. And, and yes, I will support the president on November 3rd. Now, Mayor Voss, you are actually not endorsed by the Republican Party. Does, does that bother you? You know, which endorsements do you particularly value? I'm endorsed by folks all throughout East County, District 2. The ultimate being Diane Jacob, the 28-year the incumbent who's done incredible things for the district. The majority of mayors in the district, majority of council members, folks on water boards, fire boards, boards of education, 
Cal Fire firefighters, SEIU, United Domestic Workers, Deputy Sheriff's Association, and every law enforcement group in the district. Also by Laborers Local 89, Latino American Political Association, Asian Americans for Equality, Black Contractors Association. They support me because they know my record. They want their elected representatives to demonstrate integrity and respect and fair representation. That's what I've always done and always will do. Okay, now, Senator Anderson, you are endorsed by the Republican Party. Why, why do you think they picked you? What values do you represent better than your opponent? Well, uh, I'm pretty straightforward. My answers are succinct. I don't speak in platitudes. You get yes and no answers out of me when you ask me a question. And I think that that's really important. I, I did over 453 bills with Democrats while I was served in the legislature. If you added all the Republicans together collectively, I did more bills than all of them. And I did that because people knew that when I gave my word, it meant something. I didn't tell people what they wanted to hear in my opinion change with the audience that I spoke to. So when you're looking to build bridges, you have to be honest and you have to uh, understand the other person's viewpoint and look for that mutual ground. Okay, now, whoever wins this uh, seat, the County Board of Supervisors will still be dealing with the coronavirus one way or another. Senator Anderson, do you support the state's four-tier system for reopening businesses? I have a lot of frustrations with it. Uh, look, I support science. And three of, uh, three of my friends have passed away from coronavirus. I understand how serious it is. But I also understand that we need to get to herd immunity. And if the goalposts keep changing and we're saying stuff like big box stores can be open, and yet mom and pop shops can't be open, that is very difficult for people to track. They want to have consistency. They want to know what the parameters are, and they don't want people to keep changing them. Um, Mayor Voss, what's your take on on the four-tier system for opening businesses that is determining how many businesses can open how far? This is a dangerous virus, well over 200,000 dead in the United States, close to 800, I think, in the county. So we've got to pay attention, but Small businesses are being crushed, and I struggle with the fact that this is being treated as a one-size-fits-all pandemic. It's as though the state is trying to do brain surgery with a chainsaw, when really what's needed is a steady hand with a scalpel. I'd like to see us have more local control. Uh, The impacts in Barrio Logan and and Barrett Junction uh, are very different, and I would much prefer that we're in a position to be able to deal with those on a local level. Okay, let's talk a bit about housing and development, because it's fair to say the region is desperate for more housing. But, you know, climate change and wildfires are increasingly threatening homes built in that rural-urban interface that is included in your district. Mayor Voss, where do you support building new development? With regard to the, you know, areas, the fire zones, roughly 80% of the unincorporated area is in a high fire-prone zone. So a blanket denial of housing permits in, in such areas would be a de facto moratorium. And that would impact large-scale projects and single-family homes. That would impact affordable housing. Nobody wants that. What we really need is balance. Areas with limited infrastructure in the back country may not be safe to put homes, but areas closer to urban centers, villages, or corridors like the I-15 may be more uh, suitable. We may need to take another look at our general plan. There have been significant changes from Sacramento 
uh, in recent years. And we need to have a fresh look at where development is best and safest. Okay. Senator Anderson, would you vote for new housing developments in the unincorporated areas of your district? I wouldn't rule it out. I don't want to see the data. I live in one of those areas, Alpine. Three weeks ago, there was a fire uh, within a mile of my house. We lost power for 12 hours. So I understand firsthand. But I also understand that none of my neighbors nor I started that fire. And that fire would have occurred whether we were there or not. And if we weren't there, fire trucks wouldn't have responded as quickly because nobody would have notified them because they wouldn't have known where the fire is. So people who are living out there are really the canary in the coal mine protecting the city because we saw in the Witch Creek and the Cedar Fire, the fires almost push out to the ocean. It, it got deep into the city and uh, had somebody caught that fire sooner, we could have nipped it in the bud. Okay, well, speaking of wildfires, obviously climate change is a big issue. So I would like you to both reflect on where you stand on the government's role in preparing for climate change. You know, should the county's climate action plan be modified? And if so, how? San Diego County doesn't have a climate action plan. It absolutely needs to have it. You can't say that that you take climate change seriously and never propose or pass one like Poway. You have to you have to do it. It's in our community's best interest to have a climate action plan. Now, there's other communities, other cities in the region that have had uh, success passing one. Here in San Diego, uh, we've made three attempts. We've been tied up in the courts. It's time to stop spending money defending bad policy and start looking to the future of what we can pass and how we can make it work. Once you have a climate action plan, any new project will save money in time passing all the environmental studies. So it's in our best interest to move forward with it. Okay, so Mayor Voss, indeed the county's plan has been tied up in the courts. What do you think is the way forward? Well, first of all, yes, climate change is absolutely real. If you have any doubt, and look at how the military is planning for it. Uh, As far as the county's climate action plan, we need to get everybody at the table. Set egos aside, it's critical we find a path to balance climate protections with the need for new housing. Because right now we have a de facto moratorium on building in the unincorporated area. I I think we can get it done. The MSCP process, Multiple Species Conservation Program, brought together the building industry, wildlife agencies, environmental groups, and many others and created a meaningful environmental protections and allowed streamlining in the permit process and allowing the county to sign off for all parties. That's the example we should look towards. Okay, thank you. So now, recently, the county has budgeted millions more dollars to address mental health and homelessness. What is the best thing the county is doing at the moment to address mental health? And what future initiatives would you support? Mayor Voss. Well, my own sister was diagnosed uh, severe schizophrenic in her late teens. And she lived a rough and tumble life on, on the streets at times due to her mental illness. So I'm thankful this issue is finally out of the shadows and getting the spotlight and funding It deserves hundreds of millions of dollars are now being spent on behavioral health, including mental health and addiction treatment services. For too long, law enforcement, firefighters and paramedics have been carrying the burden of treating people during mental health crises. And that always leads to a revolving door at emergency rooms. We're finally moving towards a better way with crisis stabilization units where someone who isn't stable but doesn't belong in a jail or hospital bed can be cared for. We also need long-term care and coordination for those folks. We're getting there. I I appreciate Supervisor Fletcher's leadership on this. We spoke a month or so ago about next steps, and I look forward to working with them. Just weeks ago, I visited with the staff at 
Alvarado Hospital, they're anxious to bring a crisis stabilization unit online. There's no doubt it's needed. All to say for, for those in desperate need of effective treatment and for our folks on the front lines dealing uh, with the human impact of mental illness, I, I won't rest until we can provide the, the resources and programs and facilities they need. Okay. And Senator Anderson, do you have any uh, ideas or initiatives that you would support in the future for the county to do about uh, those suffering from mental health issues? Well, I have a long track record in the legislature supporting mental health and uh, funding mental health. Jim Bell and I uh, joined author to bill to bring money to th- in a pilot program to three counties, and it was $200 million to help with mental health. Look, I'm grateful for what Nathan's done on mental health. I think he's 100% right. We have 100 beds dedicated to mental health, but 3.5 million people in the county. When uh, when we send out sheriff's team on 5150s, which is when someone's having a mental break, we need to have perp teams. We need to have psychologists out there with them, uh, not in lieu of them, but with them. And right now, we only have three teams. We need many more of those teams. We could have much better outcomes if we worked together and put the emphasis on treating these folks and getting them back to a stable position and stable life. Okay. Thank you. So finally, I just wanted to ask you um, to wrap this up. You know, are there policy issues where you feel like you openly disagree and the difference between you is very marked? Or would you say that it's more a question of, of who you are and your backgrounds? Senator Anderson, can you start that one? I've been outspoken. I've spoken against my party. I've spoken with my party. I have been an independent leader in Sacramento. Daryl Steinberg recognized me as my own caucus for two weeks. Yes, it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but the fact of the matter is I was named uh, the third most independent uh, legislator in Sacramento. I want to fix things. I want to move the ball, and I'm tired of politicians who just make excuses but never really do anything. How can you say you care about homelessness when Poway doesn't have a homeless shelter? How can you say that you care about the environment when you don't have a climate action plan in your own city. That's a lack of leadership. That's not about leadership. That's about followership. And so I wrote my sleeves and I work hard. Thank you. So Mayor Voss, let's talk about leadership. What, what would you say is the difference between yourself and your opponent here? I think my personality allows me to work with everyone. I'm proud to have been elected unanimously the chair of the San Diego Association of Government Board of Directors the majority of which is uh, democratic. They elected me because they trust me and they enjoy working with me. And that's reflected in all of my endorsements for County Board of Supervisors. I think it comes down to temperament, track record, and trust. Gentlemen, I'd like to thank both of you very much for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, We've been speaking with former California Assemblyman and State Senator Joel Anderson. Senator Anderson, thank you. Thanks for having us on. Appreciate it. And Mayor of Poway and Chair of the San Diego Association of Governments, Steve Voss. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was San Diego County Board of Supervisor District 2 candidates, Poway Mayor Steve Voss and former State Senator Joel Anderson. They were speaking with Allison St. John. The question of whether systemic racism exists has been central to the presidential campaign. Democrats Joe Biden and Kamala Harris call it a major problem. Republicans Donald Trump and Mike Pence take umbrage at the idea. 
And amid the Black Lives Matter protests last spring and summer, teenage sisters are raising the issue among students and faculty at Poway Unified School District, and they made a big impact. Joining me to explain is Kristen Takeda, education reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Welcome back to the program, Kristen. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, introduce these sisters. Who are they and what did they set about doing within the Poway school system? Yeah, these are two sisters. They're named Nene and Ekene. They, uh, one of them, Nene, she graduated from Poway and her sis, younger sister, Ekene, currently goes to Westview High. But basically what they did is over the summer, they created this um, Instagram account where they invited students of color to share what their experiences were like in school and are like for them in school. And the account really blew up with hundreds of stories about racism that students, former students, and even um, some staff had uh, experienced in Poway schools. And a lot of it was uh, racism from other students, but there were also several stories about racism from staff and adults. And so that was a big development that happened this summer for Poway, and it really brought attention to the problem of racism and and that was happening in schools. And your story noted they received 1,200 examples of uh, racist incidents at the school, which is rather astounding. And I want you to give us a few examples of what students at Poway Unified shared anonymously via Black at PUSD. But first, let's hear from Ekene Okolo talking about an anonymous post that really struck her. The story talked about how a teacher had black students play slaves and the white students be like the slave masters and had black students pretend to pick cotton and things like that. And that was a story that definitely shocked the both of us. Um, And in that moment, in reading that story, we realized that if we had more teachers of color on campus, things, those, those things wouldn't happen because those teachers would be able to say, that's not right. And what were some other examples that you included in your story, Kristen? There are a whole range of examples ranging from racial, straight out racial slurs, such as the N-word. And also there were lots of uh, microaggressions or basically assumptions based on racial or other stereotypes. So, and there were also things like bullying or teasing because of the way a student's name sounded or what they were eating or what their hair looked like. And then there were some more extreme stories where students said that staff had even sorted students into groups based on their skin color or their race. It was a very large range of of experiences. Right. And as you know, it would uh, involve the uh, staff members and, and teachers as well. Now, for listeners who may not be familiar with Poway, how would you characterize the district? Actually, the students who go to Poway are relatively diverse, although Black students make up a very small minority. They're, I believe they're about 2% of the students, but um, most students who go to Poway are uh, students of color, but um, I, I guess if you look at one racial group, white students are the biggest single group. And what was the reaction of the Poway School District to the Black in POSD survey, uh, starting with the superintendent? When I interviewed the associate superintendent who was in charge of, basically in charge of implementing these reforms, she had actually said they were already aware of the problem of racial slurs happening on campus um, for the past 
few years. And that's something they attributed to the national political climate. But um, I think, I think I still think that with the Black Lives Matter protests that happened in June and also the this Instagram account, those were just additional factors that really fueled a need to look at these efforts again, these racial equity efforts. And what changes are taking place in Poway schools as a result? Um, yeah, basically they uh, they wanted several reforms that they wanted to see in schools to prevent this from happening again or to stop it from happening. And so among those were having a more inclusive curriculum that just does it focus solely on or mostly on Eurocentric history or um, or basically white people. And so that was one thing they wanted to see. They also wanted to see better and more training for staff about uh, anti-bias and being inclusive. But now because of partly because of what was revealed in that Instagram account, um, the Poway School District has, especially since the summer, they've been really um, focusing on implementing these reforms and changing it so that the school environment is just in general better for for students of color. And what's been the reaction of the sisters who started it all rolling there at Poway Unified uh, School District? Uh, Are they happy with uh, everything that's taken place so far? They've been working with the school district to work on all these reforms and the district has been working with other students, other student leaders as well. Then they've been holding community forums about racial equity too. So they seem to be happy with the fact that progress is being made or that things were moving forward. And for example, one thing they worked with the district on was helping to recruit more teachers and staff of color as well. So the district, so they hired 13 more black teachers and other staff um, just in the past few months since the Instagram account started and this movement got into motion. Well, it's a good example of a couple of people with an idea can really make a difference. I've been speaking with Kristen Takeda, education reporter with the San Diego Union-Tribune. Thanks, Kristen. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating, and Air Restoration and Flood Services. Family-owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air, and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Mark Sauer. For decades, clinical trials have mostly recruited white men, but a federal 10-year study called All of Us is trying to change that. It aims to diversify medical research by collecting genetic data from a million people, with around half of them being people of color. But as KPBS reporter Shalina Chatlani says, some researchers believe the program may not actually benefit everyone. 
Eleven years ago, when Los Angeles resident Estela Mata was 35 years old, her sister was diagnosed with lupus. And she literally almost died. Treatments were hard to find for the Mexican family. Lupus, a disease that causes the immune system to attack the body, still doesn't have a cure. When we found out that lupus was like genetic, we're like, oh my gosh, like we need to get more involved into like clinical trials. Mata and her sister heard about a National Institutes of Health clinical trial called the All of Us Research Program and enrolled about a year ago in Los Angeles. The $1.5 billion program started enrolling patients in 2018 and hopes to rectify a decades-long problem that most clinical trials have only collected data on white men and not Latinas like Mata. We're talking about precision medicine, right? We're talking about the future of our uh, of our health care. Right now, it's not customized to the individual. Mata says she gave up her genetic information because she thought it would be used to help people of color. Hispanic women, for example, are more likely to be affected by lupus compared to white women. But one genetics researcher says the All of Us program is likely not really for all of us. You can't really talk about science in America without talking about colonialism. UC San Diego anthropologist Kialu Fox looks at the ocean. It reminds him of how he got into genetics to study his Hawaiian ancestry, but found people like him are often exploited in science. In science, there aren't enough, you know, PhD carrying brown, black, and indigenous people to represent our interests. Fox says that exploitation of people of color could happen with the All of Us Research Program, funded by taxpayer dollars. The data is open to everyone. Is it actually going to benefit indigenous black and brown communities in the same way that it's going to benefit a handful of people that work for Pfizer, Merck, GSK, etc.? I don't think so. Biomedical historian Ben Hurlbut says that's likely. In the 90s, academic researchers started teaming up with rare disease community groups to identify genes causing disease so they could try to come up with treatments. The academic researchers would patent the gene without the involvement of the rare disease group who brought them the resources to do the research in the first place. In fact, after scientists discovered the gene causing cystic fibrosis in 1989, a rare disease group and NIH-funded researchers partnered to study the condition. Vertex Pharmaceuticals used the decades of research to create a therapy that could help 90% of patients, but it costs around $300,000 a year. My, when that drug came out, I, my daughter was in like third grade or something, and one of her best friends had CF. His mom took on a full-time job in order to pay for the drug. More than 270,000 people have signed up or gone through all of us so far. Hurlbut says the solution to unequal health care access isn't easy, but we control the market dynamics and... We could change those tomorrow if there was the political will to do so. Pharmaceutical companies are working on the All of Us study, but Alyssa Kotler, a spokeswoman for the program, says participants get information before they consent. And she says private-public partnerships and drug discovery have produced life-saving therapies. It really is important to bring together all of these different voices to make sure that we're building a resource that will be available to answer this very ambitious call. Kotler says the data has been made anonymous and there's a code of conduct. She says the NIH is aware future treatments from the program may be unaffordable, but she says the NIH doesn't have an answer to that problem yet and says it's not their job to control drug prices. There have been a lot of conversations with different communities um, to really help us think this through. 
and think about potential solutions. As for all of us study participant Estella Mata, she says she's okay with the idea of her data going to a pharmaceutical company if people like her sister, who need the therapies, will be able to afford them. Shalina Chatlani, KPBS News. Phil Halpern has fled the U.S. Justice Department. Halpern was a prosecutor at the San Diego U.S. Attorney's Office for 36 years under six presidents and 19 different attorneys general. Halpern worked on the corruption cases of former Congressman Duke Cunningham and Duncan Hunter. Halpern told KPBS's Amitha Sharma that he quit his job because of what he calls current Attorney General William Barr's resentment of rule of law prosecutors. Here's that interview. What I meant by rule of law is that every single prosecutor in the Department of Justice is sworn to follow the laws of the United States. That's the very fundamental bedrock of our democracy. When we have an attorney general, the head prosecutor, who thinks it's more important to follow the dictates of a president than it is to follow the laws of the United States, we have a problem. So tell me specifically, why did you decide to leave the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Diego? I was hoping when the Attorney General selectively quoted from the Mueller report, it was a mistake. He wasn't trying to mislead the American people. However, it became clear when I saw what happened in the Manafort case, the Flynn case, the Stone case, the imposition of the President's will through him on the normal course of justice, this became too much. And it just continued from there his representing of Donald Trump's personal interests, whether it was trying to stop Michael Cohn from publishing a book, trying to prevent the president's tax returns from being public, his representing his wife's interests in a tell-all book about her, his representing the president in a sexual harassment lawsuit by E. Jean Carroll that had happened more than a decade before he was president. Attorney General Barr was working as Donald Trump's personal lawyer as opposed to the lawyer for the people of the United States, which is his job. This is outrageous. He's acting as the president's consigliore, his mafia attorney. The better question is almost, why did I stay as long as I did? And I stayed because I felt it was imperative to complete the prosecution of Duncan Hunter and his wife. President Trump made it clear in an early tweet that he was upset at the Attorney General for indicting both Duncan Hunter and Chris Collins, two of his most ardent supporters in Congress. Given that, I was very, very concerned that there'd be meddling from the Department of Justice if I left. Some might say Barr's predecessor, former Attorney General Sessions, acted more egregiously when he went along with a Trump plan in 2018 to prosecute all undocumented immigrants even if children had to be separated from their parents. And many of these children ended up in cages, in detention. Did you think about leaving the Justice Department then? It bothered me, but at the time, I waited. And I said, as long as I personally would have nothing to do with it, I could do more good on the inside. I was what I think Donald Trump would refer to derisively as the deep state. And I want you to know that's a term that the career people in the Department of Justice and every other agency now wear with pride. 
Several federal prosecutors have quit the Justice Department under Barr, including the four who worked on the Roger Stone case. Why did you go public with your criticism of Barr? Well, I'm towards the end of my career, and I had less to lose. Even that was a serious decision. It was something that troubled me greatly. I love the Department of Justice. I've made my entire career there. Its people are some of the best you could find anywhere, and in many ways, going against the Department of Justice is seen as an attack. Now, I want to make it clear, I went against the Attorney General and the leadership of the Department of Justice, not the Department. But no prosecutor wants to walk that narrow line. I also felt, because I weighed being silent, but at the end of the day, silence is really the enemy of democracy. Unless people speak up, we won't have a democracy. How widely shared are your views within the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Diego? In one simple word, widely. I have to tell you, one of the best things that have come from this, because obviously some people are upset at me, but that's balanced by the hundreds of emails, text messages, phone calls telling me that they're happy with what I did, they're proud of me, that I gave them a voice. And because of that, I am forever grateful. And it's my hope that more prosecutors may speak out. What have been the consequences for U.S. attorneys' offices across the country of having Attorney General Barr at the helm? The consequences have to do with morale. Somebody says, who's your boss? If you have to say Bill Barr, you're not going to hold your head up high when people see how he's politicized the Department of Justice. So U.S. Attorney Bob Brewer in San Diego, your former boss, sent out a press release this week designating prosecutor Chris Tenorio as the election officer for the Southern District. And the goal is to deter election fraud and discrimination at the polls. What's your take on this move? I have nothing bad to say about Bob Brewer in doing something like this. The fact of the matter is, Chris Tenorio has been our election fraud coordinator for years and years. He's a loyal public servant. He's a great guy. He's going to do a good job. My problem is not with that. My problem is with the Department of Justice and Bill Barr. For the first time since I can remember, decades, changing our policies to say that he is going to attempt to bring charges regarding election fraud before the election. That's very, very dangerous. Now, the reason that's so dangerous is because Bill Barr is likely at the president's command to bring those charges selectively. The people need to see a Department of Justice that's not taking sides. What's your prediction for the Justice Department if President Trump wins the election next month? If you had asked me the same question a year ago, maybe even six months ago, I'd say, don't worry, Amitha, we have a strong democracy. We don't have anything to worry about in this country. We have the courts, we have the press, we're going to be fine. I can't say that now. If Bill Barr is put in charge of the Justice Department and Donald Trump of this country for another four years, I think our democracy is in risk. I think this country could slip into tyranny. A president who asks for his political opponents to be indicted and jailed is a dictator. This is reprehensible. People can't lose track of this. No democracy can have the president ask for the jailing of his political opponents. If we do, we're going to be more like Russia or Turkey than we're going to be like the United States. So if Vice President Joe Biden 
wins the presidential election next month, what happens at the Justice Department? Well, it's simple. We're going to have an attorney general installed who follows the rule of law. We know what type of person Joe Biden is because we've seen that in eight years as vice president. We're going to have the people of the United States be represented by the attorney general. And we're going to have an attorney general who is not a lapdog of the president. Phil Halpern, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Amita, it's been my pleasure. In the summer of 1988, Yellowstone National Park was engulfed in flames. After the fire was extinguished, plenty of thorny questions remained. What did those fires mean for the park's near pristine rivers and lakes? Today we start a series taking a closer look at where water and fire intersect across the West. From KHOL, Robin Vincent reports from Jackson, Wyoming. National Park Service hydrologist Aaron White is at Kepler Cascades, where white water plunges 150 feet into the Firehole River. The multi-tiered waterfall is flanked by a sea of mature lodgepole pine trees. Dotted in between are young trees that sprouted after the 1988 fires. You can see some of the variation in the landscape and the types of environments that were affected. The 1988 Yellowstone fires torched more than a third of the park and touched nearly all of its landscapes in some way. That meant very few watersheds in Yellowstone were not impacted. White likes to call Yellowstone America's first water park. It's home to the headwaters of multiple major rivers and hundreds of waterfalls. Thousands of geysers, mud pots, and hot springs gush, bubble, and boil here too. Because the 1988 fires focused the nation's attention on wildfire for months, soon after, scientists descended on the park to study the impacts. What they found reflects the fire's legacy of renewal. Small streams were affected in the short term with ashy runoff, but big bodies of water showed little change in water quality. That resilience proved important back then. Saving and then recovering watersheds was... KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. ...isn't top of mind for overwhelmed fire managers. Human-built infrastructure was the priority. Good morning. Those wildfires raging in the area of Yellowstone National Park show no signs of... Very quickly, it became apparent that we did not have and could not have the resources to contain the fires, despite the best effort of thousands of firefighters. That's Steve Fry, a former incident commander. He and his team were laser focused on protecting three things. Firefighters, the public, and those iconic developments within the park. Icons like the historic Old Faithful Inn, built in 1903. Former Yellowstone historian Lee Whittlesey was a law enforcement ranger at the time. Old Faithful was surrounded by fires on all sides. And I remember just being amazed that everywhere I looked for 360 degrees, I saw fire. For incident commander Fry, the fires signaled a paradigm shift. They ushered in a new chapter of massive, frequent fires that communities across the West face today. And they expanded our understanding of wildfires' vital ecological process. 
it was for many of us in wildland fire management something that we had never experienced before but the magnitude and the fire behavior we have experienced a number of times since the subtext here is climate change. It's fueling longer, more intense fire seasons. Montana State University paleoecologist Kathy Whitlock studies how climate influences fire. She was in Yellowstone in the summer of 88, but she wasn't there for the fires. Whitlock was examining the history of the park's plants, and the fires were simply a nuisance. I hadn't really even thought about fire as being something worthy of attention because there hadn't been fires in Yellowstone for a long time. In the end, the fires refocused her career. She pioneered a way to trace back fire history thousands of years using charcoal from the park's lakes and streams. And she found that in many Western forests, wildfires have long played a key ecological role. But today, with a smaller window between fires, the concern is... There won't be enough time for trees to establish, for seeds to disperse. In turn, forests could transform into grasslands. This all dials back to water. In 1988, Yellowstone saw a profoundly dry summer, priming it for megafires. It was the kind of hot, dry summer that will likely become more frequent in the years ahead, putting Yellowstone's wildfire resilience to the test. I'm Robin Vincent in Jackson, Wyoming. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Mark Sauer. A visit to Disneyland has become part of the holiday season for many California families. But like so many other traditions, this year that visit may have to be canceled. New state guidelines require theme parks like Disneyland and Legoland to remain closed until their counties enter Tier 4, the least restrictive of the state's coronavirus levels. Since the locations of most California theme parks are in counties in the first or second tier, experts say it may take months before the venues are allowed to reopen. But a coalition of theme park leaders say that requirement is unfair, and they hint a lawsuit may be in the works. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Lori Weisberg. And Lori, hello. Hello. Okay, so California's theme parks have been closed for a long time. When were they forced to shut their doors? Um, like many other businesses around mid-March. Now, they, when we say forced, they actually, they'll tell you that they all voluntarily shut down around mid-March. Um, but it was coming anyway. So, yeah, it's been a, it's been a really long time. Um, I should, I should point out that SeaWorld's a little bit of an anomaly. Uh, it not so long ago got permission in August to reopen partially um, under the rules for zoos and aquariums. So um, it's, you know, animal encounters and those sorts of things are open, but none of its bread and butter rides are, are open at all, like theme parks. Okay, so give us an idea of the kinds of venues that are affected by the closures. It's not SeaWorld, but what else? So every major theme park in California, from Disneyland to Universal Studios, to Legoland, to Knott's Berry Farm, I mean, all the biggies. There's a separate set of rules that the state just released for smaller parks that, that are more amusement-type parks that for capacity under 15,000. And in San Diego County, we would know that type of park as Belmont Park. 
but they um, they get slightly easier rules. They can open in what's known as tier three. They don't have to wait all the way to the least restricted, which is tier four. What kind of impact has closing the theme parks had? Well, it's um, it's obviously hurt these the companies that own these parks. Um, they've all had to go into basically debt, but they have to get extra debt to keep the parks running. There was one recent study that said that Disneyland alone has an $8.5 billion economic impact on um, the Anaheim, Southern California area. So that, um, that's gone. Uh, and that, and that has a ripple effect because that means all the kinds of businesses, whether it's SeaWorld and Mission Bay or the, you know, all the Anaheim businesses around Disneyland, all those businesses that rely every year for the, for the business that those parks get, that's all gone. So, um, it, tens of thousands of layoffs. Um, all these parks have had to either put their employees on furlough or lay them off. So it's, it's a huge, huge impact. And, and really, what is the state saying about when they can reopen? So the biggest, I mean, there's a number of rules, but the, the biggest, most troublesome one for the theme parks is this idea of waiting to tier four, which, you know, as you know, we have this new sort of tiered system in San Diego and many of the other Southern California counties, except for LA, are in the second uh, most restrictive tier. So we have to bring our case rates down significantly to get into those more relaxed levels. And the theme parks are arguing that's going to take a really long time. And then on top of that, once we do make it into those more relaxed into that more relaxed tier, they would limit the capacity at the parks to just 25%. Um, and the theme parks argue, well, in the most relaxed tier, all other businesses get to be either no capacity limit or 50%. So why are they being singled out? So um, those are those are two of the key restrictions that they they don't like at all. And then oh, another one is that everybody that wants to come to a theme park once they're open has to call has to make a reservation 24 hours in advance. And then the theme parks have to contact all those people and screen them before they actually arrive. Um, they're arguing that that too is very. It's, it's almost impossible for them to operate that way. Uh, and the theme park, the coalition of theme park leaders are protesting the idea that they have to remain closed while parks and zoos can open, whereas much of the theme park operations are outdoors. So what do health officials say about why theme parks are different and need more restrictions? Um, I think the concern is that you have tens of thousands of people coming into the parks and then they're leaving and we don't know from where i mean clearly a lot from southern california but they could be from other parts of the country um and then they go out into the community and the, the worry is that these tens of thousands of people could then spread the virus to others uh, but some health officials that um, i've talked to seem to think that the protocols that the theme parks come up with may be helpful and maybe that's a little too um, rigid thinking. Uh, one one uh, person I talked to UCSD said, well, why not try an experiment? Open a theme park for several days, test everybody before, and then see what happens afterwards to see how well this works. I don't know how practical that is. Well, in a sense, there is an experiment going on in other parts of the country. For instance, Disney World has reopened in Florida. Have there been any widespread COVID outbreaks because of that? 
So that's a good point. You're right. That is that is an experiment because California's an anomaly. We're the only state that is not allowing theme parks to reopen. So I have seen um, a New York Times report that um, that they did where they said Disney World has had no outbreaks. Um, I talked to the reporter uh, that covers theme parks in Florida at the Orlando Sentinel. Well, she says she's a bit skeptical. She too said there's been very, very few cases that are tied to the theme park. There really have not been any reports of major outbreaks or, or even that many cases coming out of theme parks. Now, do state health officials indicate they'd be willing to work with the theme parks on a compromise? Well, they've said that before, and and they think they're still willing to talk, but I haven't gotten the impression yet that they're, they want to change this at any time soon. Um, for now, they sound like they're not budging on this. Okay, then. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter Lori Weisberg. And Lori, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.